0: This story is of a moth, the atomic bomb, Mm -hmm. and one very small, determined woman.
1: Is she smaller than the moth?
0: Not quite. (laughs) Almost, but not quite. That's an (laughs) amazing (laughs) story. And they all tie together to create this thing, this amazing thing, that pretty much, that you probably have never heard of, that pretty much underpins the entirety of the way our modern world works, from Walmart, to the stock market, to the smartphone, In your pocket. But first, this is Surprisingly Brilliant, a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising and brilliant discoveries, ideas, and people.
1: I'm Greg Foote. Hi, sorry, I'm awake, honest. (laughs) He's Uh, here. I'm Greg Foote. Hello. Uh, I don't have a clue what we're going to chat about, and I love that.
0: And I'm so excited to be Marin, your storyteller. You're
1: excited to be Marin.
0: I'm always excited to be Marin, but I'm even more excited to be telling you this story. So we start with the woman in question. She's born in 1906 to two math-loving parents. In the 1920s, she studies math at Vassar, which is a prestigious women's university in the United States. And she goes on to receive one of the first PhDs ever awarded in mathematics at Yale University. And that's not first PhD ever awarded to a woman in mathematics at Yale. It's first PhDs ever Ooh. awarded in math Was so that Yale. When the
1: course, well, it wasn't even a course, I guess, it was a PhD, but that was,
0: wow, it was one of the first ever... PhDs in math. She's on the brink. And I got to talk to Dr. Kurt Beyer, who is a formal naval officer. He's currently a professor of entrepreneurship at UC Berkeley. And he wrote a book all about this woman and her impact on the world.
2: When I first uh, started teaching at uh, University of California, Berkeley, and I would bring up Grace Hopper's name, I was just shocked that, you know, here's a class of people who all want to be entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, many of whom want to go into um, the tech industry, and almost to a person, none of them knew who Grace Hopper was. Um, And it was very disappointing in in many levels. Grace Hopper.
0: Grace Hopper, that's who we're talking about.
1: I'm sorry to say, I don't know of grace hopper kurt would be
0: disappointed in you no he wouldn't be disappointed in you actually he'd be disappointed in the world that sort of has erased her name from a lot of history but i think that's changing so when we start with her career at the very beginning she's in the 1920s she's a mathematician and i was kind of surprised that she gets this far in her mathematical career right in the 1920s as a woman and kurt kind of set me straight on that
2: i think what most people uh fail to understand is that uh women's progress in terms of their abilities to create careers in the sciences and mathematics is not a a progressive line there were actually greater opportunities for women in the 1920s uh, than there were for women um, all the way up until about the late 1980s so uh, grace hopper in essence was born Um, at the right time to the right families.
1: So 10 years later, 20 years later, she may not have actually had the opportunities that were available to her in the 1920s. Exactly.
0: It's the perfect time because think about it. World War One has just happened. So many men have just gone off to war and either they were just gone fighting for forever or they all died. And so women have to step into these roles that they haven't been allowed into before during wartime, right? So they get this taste of, oh, wow, we can do stuff. You know, we can use our brains to do whatever we want. Not that they weren't before, but, you know, in the professional sphere.
1: I wonder if also on top of that, during World War One, when all those men left, whether that gave actually an opportunity to the women that remained to step into some of those jobs that the men were doing before they left.
0: Yes, exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. That's mm. that's what I mean. So
1: they'd already been kind of, they'd already taken those roles and been seen to be successful in those roles. Mm-hmm. So there was a bit more trust.
0: Mm-hmm. So in the 1920s, we're seeing this uh, remnant of that period of time. But then in the 1930s, there's this
2: pushback. She becomes a professor at Vassar College and although she's, she's content there and she uh, definitely makes the best of her experience there, um, overachiever in so many ways, uh, I, I sense that there was a certain amount of frustration that after getting these degrees in mathematics that um, her time in the 30s was theoretical and she wasn't engaging necessarily in practical mathematical matters.
1: So she's a professor of maths.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's this, you say as a pushback. I guess that's because the men are kind of being like, hang on, we want our jobs back.
0: At one point before in the 20s, it was like, you're a woman, yay, use your brain and do cool stuff. And then we sort of slide back a little bit to like, no... Not like that. Only use your brain for certain things, like teaching or nursing. Which leaves her with
1: theory (laughs) rather than practice. And
0: teaching, which, you know, Kurt goes on to say it's not that she doesn't love teaching, but women often get relegated to educational spheres, to nurturing spheres. And he gets the sense that Grace really wanted to be on the forefront of pushing mathematics forward. And that is what happens, because everything changes for the U.S. and for Grace in 1941, when something pretty major happens, which is World War II. World War II is when the U.S. enters World War II. Is 1941 after the bombing
2: of Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor yeah. And so this is this is what happened to Grace. Is after Pearl Harbor, she she worked very hard to find her next career outside of teaching and outside of Vassar. And so initially, she actually went into cryptology and started working with um, former professors from Yale. And this would have been probably the the most practical path for her after uh, Pearl Harbor, and one that was uh, well attuned to her mathematical skill sets. It was at that time also that she wanted to join the Navy, and she didn't have to join the Navy to work in cryptology, but she definitely had a fascination with being in uniform
1: Kurt kept mentioning cryptology. Mm-hmm. I've not heard of cryptology. I've heard of cryptography. Mm-hmm. So during that clip, I was Googling. It's cr- a cool cryptology, difference. Cryptology versus cryptography. Tell us, tell us, tell us. So starting with cryptography, which mm-hmm. I know about, as the art of creating codes. Exactly. Cryptology is the study of codes. Exactly. Both, both creating and solving exactly. them. Exactly. Okay, right. So it's
0: both sides. <laughs> so if
1: you solve them, you're not doing cryptography. <laughs> you're doing cryptology. Whole different field, man. <laughs>
0: Get out of here. So the story about being in the Navy, I think, is is so cool. And so funny, because like Kurt says, she doesn't have to be in uniform, she doesn't have to be in the military to do this mathematical, cryptological work, but she has a grandfather who is an admiral in the Navy and an uncle who was the head of the Marine Corps, and she says to herself, like, hey, I want to be one of those guys too.
1: How awesome that she gets to combine that love of math, that interest in cryptology, with, you know, family history and ambition to go into the Navy.
0: Exactly. But here's the thing she is not successful on her first try. She tries Multiple times to join the Navy, but she keeps getting turned down. Do we know why? Yes! The first times it was because they weren't actually even accepting women into the Navy, or at least not into the places that she was applying. They couldn't be active service members. But then after they do start letting women serve, she gets turned down again because of her age. She's 37 at oh, the time. But she's been trying to get in
1: when she, she was probably it the right so age. So bad.
0: And because of her stature, she doesn't meet the physical requirements. She oh, said she's it was about a small, small woman. She's 5'3 and she's pretty underweight for her height so the military's like what are we going to do with you grace i mean no you don't
1: need to be <laughs> tall to both create and solve codes
0: and that's what kurt, right? that's what kurt says oh. <laughs> uh,
2: and of course that's um uh, a little ridiculous given the fact that her uh, mathematical uh, knowledge and skill sets and the type of jobs she would be doing for the navy anyway wouldn't require her to uh to be a certain height and weight
1: it's a good point Kurt. it's a good <laughs> <laughs> good point. Um, technically, she's going to be closer to the codes on a piece yeah, of paper on, exactly. the ta- on the desk or something. Just put her so, in an office. You know. It'll be
0: fine. So she finally tries again in 1943. That's her, her last attempt. And she's finally accepted as a member of the Naval Reserves, where she is sent to do what she does best, which is math. Kurt actually kind of calls it a bureaucratic miracle of the military because she sort of gets kind of randomly assigned to go work at Harvard University to work on cryptography stuff, the making and breaking of codes. And she goes to Harvard because they have a machine called the Mark 1, which is what they're calling at the time a large scale automatic calculator, which sounds a lot like a computer, right? Exactly. And one of my favorite anecdotes about her time, when she first shows up at Harvard, the guy who's running that lab, he's very famous for being super gruff and very like committed to the work and not really caring about people that much. And she shows up on her first day. He doesn't even greet her or say hello. And he just goes, where the hell have you been? <laughs> and it gives her an assignment and is like, figure this out.
1: <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Tell me more about this computer, not computer.
0: Okay, so these are the precursors to the machines that we would now recognize as computers. They're really different to what we would think of as a computer, because they're actually largely mechanical, like physical moving parts. This machine, the Mark I, is 50 feet long. It weighs almost five tons. Wow. It contains 530 miles of wire. And just to add two numbers together, it takes about three to six seconds.
1: We can do it quicker than that. A
0: little bit. Well, I mean Seven maybe plus three, ten, boom. Maybe you can actually that's true. I could do it too. I'm a smart person. I can do mental math. I'm
1: guessing these are huge numbers.
0: To be fair, yes. For the most part, at the very beginning, they're less doing useful calculations then being developed as machines that will eventually be very useful. Mm -hmm. So Grace Hopper is right on the forefront of making these machines into what we are going to use for really complicated calculations. And I know they don't sound particularly earth-shattering at this time, but it's just the the very necessary first step.
1: So we're essentially, we're building good machines that we can then use in cryptology and cryptography moving forwards.
0: Precisely. And they really define everything we know about computing and all the language we use around computing even today. And one of my favorite stories ever, probably ever in science, comes from Grace Hopper working in the 40s on the Mark I.
2: So those first um, Mark computers, when they ran because they were electrical mechanical, they got very hot and there was no air conditioning at this time. So generally you had to run them at night in particular and you had to keep the windows open. And one evening... The uh, machine was not functioning properly. One of the electromagnetic circuits was getting stuck. And so, in the logbook, whoever was on duty that evening had found a moth in the electromagnetical output, pulled it out, taped it into the logbook, and then we don't know who wrote under the moth, but they wrote first actual bug found in a computer. And you can actually um, see that very logbook and the first computer bug in the Smithsonian.
1: Yes.
0: You see why I said that was one of my favorite stories of all time. Yes.
1: (laughs) First bug ever found. I love that. And I'm just realizing these computers are cipher machines, aren't they? Because, yes. you know, in the UK, you had Bletchley Park. Mm-hmm. I-, I don't know if this is something you were going to go into. This would be a great future episode for us. It, w- it
0: really would. I think we should cover it because it deserves its whole own episode. The, the computers at Bletchley Park are a little bit different. And I am going to get into I think it
1: was that. I called Colossus. Yes,
0: exactly. We're going to talk about Colossus just very briefly. Okay. But they are all related. And they're all very important to Grace's story, who is the one who then takes that first instance of an actual insect, an actual bug in this physical computer, and then is the one who coins the term bug to refer to software errors because she also literally invents software. But I'm going to tell you more about that after the break. Welcome back. You're listening to surprisingly brilliant Seeker's science history podcast where me, Marin Hunsberger, and Greg, Greg Foote, we're nice. talking about Grace Hopper and the very beginnings of computing machines at the start of World War II. Wow.
1: I can't believe I've not heard of her. This is,
0: I know. It's rubbish. I know. This is why I suggested her for this. We're at Harvard. We're in a studio in San Francisco. I mean, you and I are in a studio in San Francisco. But in this story, Greg, we're at Harvard. We're working on the Mark I with Grace Hopper. And she's putting together the 500-page manual of operations for the Mark I. Where wow. she, I know. Is extensive. She personally outlines the fundamental operating procedures for computing machines at the time. Gosh. Which, as you mentioned, with the Colossus over in the UK and Bletchley, mm-hmm. these computing machines are all pretty limited. She's trying to make them more efficient and useful because if you look up a picture of them, they're just huge walls of mechanical equipment. And at one point you have to plug in, like physically manually plug in a wire into a pegboard to ask a certain question and then physically manually remove it and plug it in elsewhere to do another calculation. Sometimes you have... uh, punch holes in paper tape that you have to manually punch and then feed into the computer. So it's very time and labor intensive. And that's
1: because essentially they're built as large versions of logic gates, I believe. So ands or ors or ifs. Mm -hmm. And And physical ones. Yes. And it's the combinations of them put together that that build formulae Mm -hmm. and the ability to compute.
0: Exactly. And actually, I mean, this is a little bit off topic, but the very first mechanical computer ever is invented way back in the 1800s by Charles Babbage. Oh. And I think we should talk about that in another episode. Yeah,
1: we should. And these because are... that's a big steampunk thing, right? It's, huge. Um, it's It's a William Gibson book where it's like, what if Babbage had actually made that a reality.
0: Exactly. And that's kind of where we are now in the 1940s. We're at the point where these machines are huge. They're capable of doing a lot more kinds of or well, a lot more complicated calculations, but they still take a lot of physical manual mechanical effort.
2: So, the Colossus, the ENIAC, the the Mark 1, they were designed and and constructed in a way where they really were s- supposed to only make one key calculation or a small set of calculations. And so it was Hopper who broke that pattern. And, and what just amazes me is she broke the pattern not just for computers, but for all human technology from that point forward.
0: So at this point, each machine, and again, these are gigantic and incredibly expensive machines. They're each designed to do kind of one specific thing, mm-hmm. right? Physically, their their architecture is constructed so that they're good at one thing and not very much else. They're not very versatile. So how do we get from Hopper using paper tape to talk to this large-scale automatic calculator to, like, your laptop, which can do 500 million things?
1: When it wants to. When
0: it wants to. When it decides it wants to work. Have you tried turning it on and off again,
1: Greg? Mm, power cycle. This
0: is where the atomic bomb comes in. I promised you the atomic bomb.
1: Mm, that was the third on the list. I've actually ticked off <laughs> moth and small woman, and I'm just waiting for You've atomic bomb. You've been
0: keeping track? Yeah. Jeez, Greg. You know what
1: I'm like? I scribble throughout all these things. I'm
0: impressed. So a man named John von Neumann is working on the super secret Manhattan project. Have you heard of Von Neumann?
1: Uh yes.
0: Yes, see, you've heard of Von Neumann, but not of Grace. Uh, no, We're I'm, about to I'm, get to this I'm point. We're about uh, to, to get honest. Well, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. So, the Manhattan project, as we know, is this super secret scientific research collaboration being done by the US to develop an atomic fission weapon for World War II. And Von Neumann is incredibly smart. There are accounts of him being like absolutely stunning in his intellectual powers. He's got a photographic memory. He's able to do insane math problems in his head he himself is almost kind of like a really advanced computer and he's in charge of a nice way of
1: looking at it (laughs) right i
0: mean that's kind of how i picture him because he's the one who's tasked with being in charge of the the branch of the manhattan project that does a lot of the math or maths as you would say Mm -hmm. to figuring out how the atomic bomb is going to work and how to make it the most efficient and how to how to make it um the weapon that the u.s wants
1: yeah because you think of the the bombs in the in the war, Manhattan Project bombs, and you think that they're just, yes, it's about fission, it's about getting the right amount of enriched uranium and what what you do with it, but there must be a lot of software actually involved in everything that packages around that and the release of it and the programming of... All all that side of it?
0: Well, that's interesting that you say that because we don't have software yet at this point. But the atomic bomb is the impetus for some kind of software. At this point, we're doing these calculations about the rate of implosion of a perfect sphere of nuclear material by hand. Wow. Right? So, because we don't have computers that are capable of doing complicated math like that yet. Except von Neumann's like, oh my God, if I had a whole room full of the most advanced mathematicians we have, we would not be able to solve this implosion problem in the amount of time that we need to. I mean, it would take us years, maybe our whole lives. So he's like, we need to get a computer on the case here. But how are we going to make a computer be able to do something A, this complicated and B, we don't have to build a whole new machine, right? Because these machines are built to do specific things.
1: So can I just check? If I've got this right. Um, the implosion problem you're talking about. Mm. Uh, so they've got a sphere of that fissionable
0: material, right? So nuclear stuff, probably uranium radioactive. two three eight. yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and they are—they've got to calculate how quickly it's going to go, 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 like through to the through to the middle. How it's quickly it's going to collapse? Exactly. Which I guess is a rate of reaction mm-hmm. thing. Like, so a uh, differential? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's too complicated to do currently in a computer.
0: It's a really difficult calculus problem, exactly, to make an efficient design for, for the bomb. And it is actually the, the one we end up using. And to solve this problem, to help him and his team solve this problem, von Neumann knows that Grace is doing some great work at Harvard, making computers more efficient and more versatile, or at least trying. And he comes to Grace and he says, hey, look, I have this problem. And what happens in here is a little bit of a black box. Not a lot is written about it. It's Manhattan Project, it's secret stuff. Um, And if Grace is really heavily involved, her name isn't written down a heck of a lot. And in 1946, von Neumann publishes his paper where he coins the term von Neumann architecture, which is the basis of a lot of the computer architecture, most of the computer architecture that we still have today. It changes the way that we build computers because it stores programs inside of it. So instead of always having to come to the computer and ask it a question every time, you can press a button on the computer. And this is a vastly simplified way of explaining it, but press a button on the computer and it will do the program by itself. Right. So that's way simpler.
1: So we don't know how much of a role Grace played in that, but we know that she was consulted on it and doing something similar at Harvard.
0: Well, Kurt's going to tell us a little bit about it.
2: Think of like the old uh, video games that first came out where, you know, you could buy a, a video console that only played Pong. And that was the only thing it did. And then it was Atari that said, well, we could have cartridges with different software to make the same console play different types of games. It's Hopper's philosophy of the fungibility of software that allows us to continue to reinvent these pieces of hardware we call computers.
1: So she was instrumental.
2: Yes. That that
1: jump in that ability for a computer to be able to do calculus was hugely instrumental for getting the best design for the atomic bomb.
0: Well, exactly. And it's not just the complicated nature of the problem, it's also this radical shift in the way a computer thinks. So I have an example that's very, very simple, right? It's a lot more complicated than this in real life, but I'm not a computer scientist, I'm a biologist. So basically, instead of having-
1: Good get out, man, good
0: <laughs> get out. So if any of this is a little too simple for you computer scientists out there, don't add me. So my, my very simple example is that instead of having to ask the computer every time, say two plus two, and then you, you're the one who's saying, do two plus two, please. You can say, run an arithmetic problem with these two numbers. So it's a little bit of a small distinction, but it makes computation more efficient because the computer already knows what you're going to ask it.
1: Yeah, I get you. I'm assuming it wouldn't be 2 plus 2 because the original computers probably could have done that. I'm assuming it's going to be like, hey, (laughs) differentiate this Oh yeah, much, much, much more complicated. Can they also do like programs within programs?
0: Well, we're about to get to that. Greg, you are on the case, man. <laughs> it's like you know what's about you to happen. You welcome. I've, I've Except got, he's I've never heard no of idea. Grace <laughs> Hopper before. I've got no idea what's going to happen. So Kurt, as he just explained earlier, does actually make the case in his book about Grace that von Neumann architecture, which is what we call the underpinnings of most modern computing, should actually be called Grace Hopper architecture. Hmm. But Grace does get credit for what you just referenced and the next huge advance in modern computing. Which we will dive into right after this short commercial break. So, we're back. You're listening to Surprisingly Brilliant, and I'm about to tell Greg the next huge advance in modern computing that Grace is responsible for. And it's called the compiler. Kurt's about to let us know what that is.
2: The compiler then becomes the translator. So, imagine if you're trying to speak to someone in German, they don't know English, you don't need German. You need to find a third party that can speak both languages and translate back and forth. Um, That's exactly what Hopper's compiler did. It served as the translator between human language and the computer language. And what the great insight of Hopper was beyond that first compiler was she then started realizing, well, there are no limitations to what human language means. It can be a bunch of symbols, mathematical symbols. It could be German. It could be English. It could be icons and graphics and Windows pages controlled with a mouse or the icons on your phone controlled with your finger. Each of those is a human form of language that then gets translated into the ones and zero code that the computer understands.
1: So this is essentially... an an interface or like a way to input something in words or images that we understand that's then converted to something that the computer understands to do the program
0: absolutely precisely the compiler the way kurt expressed it to me is like the middle filling bit in a sandwich where the bottom bit of the bread is you as a human the top bit of the bread is the computer and the compiler is the middle because by then at this point in time hopper is recognizing this uh this limitation of computers in a different way where you have to be a mathematician to be able to ask the computer these questions by now, uh, we've moved on. You know, computers um, at this point also think quote unquote, in binary. So ones and zeros, yep. basically a yes or a no, whether that's a physical component at this point, or then we move into digital. So with electrons and electric flow. Because
1: initially it was a, a, a switch. Exactly. Or a tube. Exactly. Tube, both, it?
0: both. Yep. Yeah. Um, depends on the machine. Again, they're highly specific to, to each architecture before uh, Grace and von Neumann come up with this new way of thinking about it. And then at that point, we do have a method of talking to a computer that isn't you have to physically program ones and zeros, right? Because you can imagine how many mistakes you would make if you had to be the one that was like in charge of the correct order of just ones and zeros, right?
1: And just one small rough change from one to a zero has and your a huge whole
0: program would be messed up.
1: I said transistor tube but I mean vacuum tube, no. don't I? That's what they were in the early computers. That's that's
0: the one. So we've moved, we've moved past binary. Like, that's that's just not a feasible way to talk to a computer at all. And by this point that Grace is coming up with these, this idea of a compiler, computers are programmed in machine code, which to the untrained eye looks like total gibberish. It's called hexadecimal code. Mm-hmm. So it's letters and numbers. And you still have to be like a complete expert in hexadecimal to be able to talk to your computer and ask it to do stuff. Like a programming input would be something like B061E379, right? You know, on and on and on and on. I know that
1: because that's what you get for uh, code for color. Yes. Like different colors have a hex code. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm. Exactly. Um, And someone very clever has come up with an interface software, right? Where you can click and drag uh, a little eyedropper, right? So that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about a compiler. That's what's called a graphical user interface or a GUI. But... Here, we're talking about the step before that, the compiler. Grace says, "Okay, I want to be able to have anybody be able to talk to a computer. I don't want somebody to have to be a hexadecimal expert or a mathematician. We need something that will make computing accessible to more people than just science and research. Wonderful. My girl, Grace. Yes. We love her. So
1: important in like communication of those things these days. Exactly. Like the Raspberry Pi or things like that.
0: Love me a Raspberry Pi. And so she is working on this at Harvard, the war has ended. She's done her work with von Neumann. She's still working hard on making these advancements to computing. And in 1952, she has the first operational compiler. And she says in an account of that time in reflecting in her memoir, she says, nobody believed that. I had a running compiler and nobody would touch it. They told me computers could only do arithmetic. Hmm. So she has to advocate hardcore and it takes her years.
1: We see this in in a number of these episodes, actually, a number of these stories where people are, they claim to have done a thing and people are like, nah, it's not possible. And they just close their mind down. Or they do actually do a thing and people go, nah, sorry, I can't do that thing. It's like, well, just look at it. Just
0: try it. Just give it a shot, man, yeah. <laughs> and see what happens. I promise you it's going to change the world. And again, I think we've we've pointed this out a couple times, too, that like looking back on it with this other lens and, you know, from our, our modern perspective, it's always like, yeah, of course they should have used it. But at the time, it's a huge shift in the way of thinking. So there's pushback. She has to really advocate for it. She comes up with the first English-like programming languages where you can type into a computer in English. English. Uh, and granted, it's still commands like pull and then parentheses, you know, whatever your data set is, or whatever it may be. Yeah, it's
1: not uh, free-flowing English, it's right. got to be...
0: You can't say, please do this, computer, yeah. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, computer,
1: how are you doing today? It would be great if you could possibly...
0: But you're using English words as opposed to a coded series of random numbers and that letters. That is huge. It's huge, and that code is called Flowmatic.
1: And it's something that you kind of assume was done right from the start of computing. Exactly. To have that sort of control, but actually you've now let me know that, no, that comes in later, and it had to be developed. <laughs> Exactly.
0: By Hopper. By Hopper. And I'm about to tell you how fundamentally it changed not just computing, but also the entire world. Because Flowmatic, that first English-like programming language, makes way and is the, the foundation for something called COBOL, which Grace develops and then continues to develop for years After she first comes up with it, she also keeps tending to it. And COBOL stands for Common Business Oriented Language. All
1: right. (laughs) Is this still happening in the Navy?
0: Yes. Yes, actually, she is still in the Navy because she doesn't retire until she's like 83. So, yeah. So
1: all of this is happening underneath kind of Mm -hmm. Navy.
0: Mm -hmm. Exactly. Good on them right? In a paper about her life, somebody gives uh, an account of this impetus that Grace has for doing this, this desire, and I really love the way they put it. They say, Admiral Hopper believed that the major obstacle to computers in non-scientific and business applications was the dearth of programmers for these far from user-friendly new machines. The key to opening up new worlds to computing she knew was the development and refinement of programming languages languages that could be understood and used by people who were neither mathematicians nor computer experts
1: and she's absolutely right I think it's scratch that I've seen the kids use to kind of learn logic and programming language essentially, because it is those simple words that you can reorder and they use it to make like little animations and run programs online and mm-hmm. they're absolutely it's such a powerful tool to mm-hmm. be able to use their own language to actually program something and see it happen exactly. and that all comes back the hopper. It does. Cobol. Cobol, yeah. yes.
0: C-O-B-O-L. And there are other languages being developed at this time. So she did Flowmatic beforehand, which was the precursor mm-hmm. to it. Fortran is a is a popular uh, scientific coding mechanism at the time, uh, programming language, but it's not as user friendly. It's not as oriented towards a non-science person as COBOL is. And Kurt is about to give us a sense of just how drastically COBOL and the compiler change our modern world.
2: So, for instance, in the early 60s, there's a a young man who learns uh, COBOL who realizes that he can manage inventories for stores much more efficiently. His name is Sam Walton, and uh, Walmart is one of the first use cases of a COBOL-driven inventory management system. A young intern named Dick Fisher, who knows COBOL, uh, goes to work in the early 60s, To a um, very small uh, investment bank in New York, um, which has about 50 employees and about $4 million in revenue. And he uses COBOL to start doing financial analysis for this company. And uh, it's so successful, in fact, that 10 years later, Dick Fisher is named. Uh, the CEO of this uh, company, and it's uh, Morgan Stanley.
1: Oh, just that small company. You
0: know, just Walmart, just Morgan Stanley, just casual, just whatever.
1: So this COBOL or or whatever else is around for for Tran, not for Chan. <laughs> <the> uh,
0: <laughs> well, and in these two specific cases, it's it's COBOL specifically,
1: right? And what that allows is it allows an everyday person, a normal person who doesn't have a computer computational background, mm-hmm. to start handling data sets, to start doing simple programs themselves that you know, they would have done with little bits of paper and writing and, you know, file decks. And- exactly.
0: So instead of like, you know, your corner grocery store just doing their accounts by hand, they have an accountant that they employ to keep a logbook, you know, like a physical paper spreadsheet. Sam takes this new, incredibly powerful tool that can handle vast amounts of information and do way more complicated things with that data and You can see how that little corner store, that community marketplace would then be enabled to become something like a transnational franchise corporation like Walmart.
1: (laughs) Cool story.
0: It's pretty amazing. So it is essential. Grace and the compiler is necessary to be able to use programming languages, right? So I think it's easy to focus on the programming language as being this really an integral step that really opened up computing to non-scientific audiences. But the compiler is what makes that possible. And the compiler is a piece of software.
1: So the compiler is the software. So this is essentially the first... Software.
0: Exactly. So the compiler, which comes first, is a piece of software and then you layer more pieces of software on top of that, like a programming language, which is also a software. So Grace is the mother of all software.
1: It's so upsetting that these sorts of people are not given the exposure and accolades that they deserve.
0: You're telling me. I really,
1: I genuinely am embarrassed that I don't know Hopper's story.
0: I think people are starting to recognize her more and are, are celebrating her more, which gives me a lot of hope. But Kurt is about to sort of get us there and take us all the way into the now and really bring us home with Grace's contributions.
2: And so this way, we can now create different softwares that can turn the hardware in one case to a a payroll machine, the next case to look at ballistics tables, the next case to do a flight simulator. And we live with this every single day, right? So when we look at our iPhone, it's a single piece of hardware. But every single software app that we download turns it into whatever we want it to be. So it could be a calendar, it can be a video game machine, it can be email. That is all done through the power of software. Uh, So it's the most amazing multiplying effect because uh, now you start creating virtual worlds out of software that move well beyond the hardware structure that it sits upon.
0: So we've gone from these incredibly specialized machines that take up whole rooms that you have to move a plug into and out of by hand to ask a question. And Grace is really what gets us from that to something that's so much more versatile. And of course, when she's doing this, she's not thinking about a smartphone, right? She dies in 1992. So she doesn't really get to see
1: 1992.
0: 1992. Uh, so she doesn't get to see it come all the way to what, you know, Curtis is talking about at the end yeah, there. She
1: must have seen some incredible things yes. at the end of her life.
0: Yes. We'll get to the end of her life in a second because it is also extraordinary. But this is where I say to Kurt, so basically it's like a moth, the atomic bomb and one tiny determined woman are responsible for Walmart, the stock market and the age of digital information. Right. That that tease that I threw to you at the beginning. And he laughs and he says,
2: yeah, but don't forget the other you know, unsung women and men during this period. One, you know, one thing I talk about a lot at University of California, Berkeley, is that no individual creates a technical revolution. No individual creates a startup. We, as a society, I think we like to also give too much credit to individuals. Um, So Steve Jobs did not build Apple. A lot of different people built Apple. Bill Gates did not build Microsoft. A lot of people built Microsoft. Same thing with Grace. I think Grace had the key philosophies and also created probably the single most important invention, but she was very good. And this is a key point. She was very good at organizing people and motivating teams. And I think this is what we leave out a lot. Oftentimes when we depict uh, technologists in the, in the movies, for instance, you know, they're, they're geniuses who maybe have a hard time interacting with people. Uh, in fact, Grace is the opposite. Her great strength is her ability to organize and interact with people.
1: Amen to that. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I think it's something that we could be accused of succumbing.
0: Right on this podcast. On this, yeah, on this I know. Podcast,
1: right? Choosing one person and kind of uh, celebrating them over the others. Mm-hmm. But but then I think on in our defense, we do then also talk about the teams. We also talk about the, the other people who are not talked about.
0: Exactly. There's context.
1: So So, yes, she is not only a great thinker, she's clearly a great leader and manager and project manager. And it's about all those other people that supported her and helped her, contributed alongside her on that journey.
0: Exactly, because you can certainly be an absolute genius, but if then you don't know how to leverage those resources to get people on your side or to get people to cooperate with you and buy into your idea or see it through all the way, you know, she spends decades tending to COBOL and making sure it's evolving to still be useful with her and her entire team. And so I think that perseverance and that dedication to bringing all kinds of people together, I kind of like to contrast it. Maybe this is a little unfair and biased of me, but I contrast it to oh, that. Oh, it's
1: going to be microbes related.
0: And you know, that is hilarious, but no. Oh. <laughs> Man, if I could find a way to tie that in, that'd be incredible. You know, that anecdote I shared with you at the beginning where she arrives at her first day at Harvard and the su- the group supervisor doesn't mm-hmm. even say hello, doesn't greet her, just says, where the hell have you been? And gives her a, a project. Mm-hmm. I like to contrast that to Kurt's interpretation of grace and her ability to motivate teams and how much more successful and productive that can be and how I think women like Grace were especially good at that, at collaboration, at bringing people together and at making sure everyone was really a team player to make some really incredible stuff happen. And those are softer skills that science and scientists maybe don't value as much sometimes.
1: But essential But skills. are essential.
0: Sure. Yeah. So we come to the end of her life. At age 79, Grace retires as a rear admiral wow. in the Navy. She pushes it all the way it's to the
1: 79. end. 79? Yeah. At That's that, a above and beyond what you were required to do at that time as well. Oh, big
0: time. Because it's
1: so much of her identity. It's her. She loves it.
0: Yes, and at the time, she's the oldest serving officer in the Armed Forces. Wow. And even after her retirement, she's 79, she's still considered such an expert that she goes on to work as a consultant at the Digital Equipment Corporation all the way up until her death in 1992. Into her 80s. (laughs) Yep. She's still chilling (laughs) in the halls. People are asking her questions. And this is where we get into Grace receiving more recognition. She, She did she was the recipient of many honorary degrees in her life, I think you know, almost a hundred honorary degrees. Wow, she received a big mental piece for that. Don't oh you? yeah. She received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2016 after her death. So she doesn't get to see it, but people are really starting to recognize her contributions to not only science, not only the military, but the whole world. The biggest conference for women in computing is called the Grace Hopper Conference and it's a big it's actually uh, called the Grace Hopper Celebration mm. uh, which I think is very key and it speaks to her life and her legacy where the women of the world in computing come together and celebrate each other and Grace's legacy and contributions I also thought this was really fun Kurt threw this in here at the end of our conversation that they're making a movie about Grace Hopper are Harper. they? they are good. which I'm really excited about
1: good because you know sadly that is one of the best ways to get into the public consciousness it's and to true. raise someone's profile and story and you
0: know what i actually don't think it's that sad because pop culture defines us right it it defines our communal knowledge and who we see and who we celebrate really matters so i think it's cool that they're
1: you're right it's not it's not sadly that that's the case that is the case Sometimes
0: things get misinterpreted yeah yeah, yeah.
1: that is the means of raising awareness about people and issues exactly you just got to tell
0: a good story exactly Speaking of which, we've come to the end of ours.
1: And you told a good one.
0: Thanks so much for listening, Greg. I could talk about Grace for literally years. So it was really cool to get to dive into her life.
1: If you also really love this story, please do rate and review the show, Surprisingly Brilliant, on whatever app you use to get your podcast Um, it really helps and do share it with your friends as well Uh, we've got more episodes coming soon we very much hope so do subscribe to catch them Uh, and if you've got a story from science history that you would like us to tell or if there's a discovery or an invention or a person you want to know more about then get in touch email us brilliant at seeker.com we would
0: love to hear from you that is brilliant at seeker.com and it's time to roll the credits surprisingly brilliant is a podcast from seeker today's episode was researched written and produced by me, Marin Hunsberger. If you want to find more of me and my face and my voice on the internet, I'm at Maren B on Instagram, at Marin Hunsberger on Twitter, Maren Hunsberger on YouTube, and I host videos for Seeger as well.
1: I just got to sit here and listen and chuck in the odd question. My name's Greg Foot. Uh, get in touch on Twitter and Instagram at Greg I'm also on the YouTubes and such. Our expert producer was Emily Feld. Our editor was Jeremy Schmidt.
0: Our studio engineer was Ariella Markowitz. Our supervising producer was David Zwick.
1: And our executive producers are Brian pendergast Brett. Krishna and Mangesh
0: Finally, another huge thanks to our guest expert, Kurt Bayer. I had a great conversation with him. If you want more on him and his work, if you'd like to read his book about grace, find that in the podcast description along with the rest of the sources I used to write this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in with your ears and uh, join us next time for when Greg's going to tell me a story. For sure. See you then. Bye. Thanks.